We all need to laugh. We choose truth over facts. And now for a perpetual political protest in progress. Judge my physical, mental, filth, my physical as well as my mental fitness. Coffee time. And yes, it is that time again. Time for a good, strong cup of coffee. This is Jason Floyd, your host on the Conservative Hour of Power and Enlightenment Salon, uh, brought to you by the Ammo Can Coffee Social Club. And we have uh, David Ignell back online with us for round six. It almost feels like we're in a prize fight, David. Uh, round six, the bells dinging, bong, let's go. Uh, let's, uh, let's, let's get a brief recap. I know it's been a long weekend. Uh, with Thanksgiving and everything, and um, uh, unbeknownst to our listeners, this is a take two. We had a bad phone connection, so uh, our intro is a little bit different, but um, David, uh, you're down in sunny New Mexico. Was was Thanksgiving good to you? Uh, uh, Thank you, Jason. Uh, Yes, uh, um, I I feel very blessed. Um, Had a uh, wonderful Thanksgiving dinner uh, with, uh, my fiance and, uh, uh, her extended family and some friends and, uh, stuffed ourselves with, uh, just a lot of good, uh, eats and Turkey. And, you know, I, I, uh, I also uh, got a call the next day from Thomas Jack, uh, up there in Goose Creek prison. And, uh, you know, uh, my, my heart goes out to him. Uh, he was talking about how they got Turkey and, uh, he thought he, um, you know, he was, he was happy for the pumpkin pie that he got. Uh, he was very thankful for that piece of pumpkin pie. And, uh, he told me that when he went up to get his Turkey, uh, it was skin side up. And, uh, so he thought he was going to make himself a Turkey sandwich and he got some white bread. And, um, when he, uh, when he turned the piece of Turkey over, all that was underneath the skin was fat. And so, you know, it's a story like that that just really uh, makes me feel thankful for, for you know, everything that uh, God has blessed me with. And, uh, you know, there's, there's so many people, uh, you know, out in society uh, who, you know, we, we need to help as much as we can. And uh, I'm just very thankful for the last four days to sit back and reflect uh, on the things that, that we have uh, to be thankful for, including uh, our liberty and uh, in our freedom and free speech and, and, uh, and grand juries. And, and hopefully uh, through our efforts, uh, Jason, and, and your, you know, I'm thankful for your efforts uh, in spreading the word and getting this out to the people of Alaska uh, so that we can uh, strive for uh, more accountability in government. Well, and you know, I uh, I had this uh, word picture come into my mind uh, about, um, uh, or an image rather of, of my kitchen cabinet, and um, uh, a number of months ago. Uh, one of the kids was uh, closing it a little harder than they should have, and the whole cabinet f- uh, face fell off. Um, and it was it was just you know a poorly designed thing. But uh, I'm a busy guy, and I I just kind of put the 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 cupboard door to the side and and we lived with it we lived with it for about i don't know five six months 
with no uh, face on it. You know, and I've got a nice kitchen. It's got hick- hickory cabinets, and, you know, it's well-designed uh, pretty much. And there was just this little flaw in it. And, you know, I stared at that gaping hole in my beautiful kitchen for six months and did nothing about it because I come home, I'd be tired from working all day, you know, emotionally and physically spent. And I just let it be. It was like, it wasn't really bothering me because it, you know, it it didn't really, it didn't really rise to the level of doing anything about it. But, but after a while, you know, uh, it really started to affect my mood when I would go into the kitchen and, eventually it got to the point where I, I started getting angry every time I looked at it. And finally I was like, you know, I should just, I should just bite the bullet. Yeah, I'm tired, but sit down, you know, figure out a map, out a plan, buy some glue, you know, see what I need to do to fix this thing. And long story short, I got it fixed. And you know what? <laughs> I love going into my kitchen now and I'm not angry anymore. And I feel at peace in that space. And, you know, how much like uh, the kitchen is our legal system and our system of government gov- governance here in the United States? It's like a kitchen with a, a cabinet door that fell off. You know, it's a beautiful kitchen. It's a wonderful kitchen. It's made out of hickory and, and marble and, and all those all those glorious things that make it a nice space. But... But it's had some use and some some things have fallen into disrepair and and uh, and they're kind of nagging problems. And the longer that we let them go, the more uncomfortable, at least I know I feel and uh, and maybe you're feeling the same way. And like me sitting down and, and putting a plan together and kind of studying the situation and figuring out what I needed to do to make it right, fix it. Uh, we have this thing called the grand jury in Alaska and, uh, it's a glorious kitchen. You know, it's, it's something that we should all be proud of and, uh, and, and serves a very useful purpose. Um, and, uh, is an integral part to what makes our society, uh, in this Republic, uh, you know, a successful and wonderful place to raise our children. But, but like that kitchen with the cabinet door that's fallen off, the grand jury is in disrepair. And, and there are actors that have abused it and used it roughly. And um, it's time for us to sit down and map out a plan. And David, you're, you've done that with this book. You've, 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 you've identified sort of what the kitchen was designed for, why it was designed, how it was designed, uh, the, the, the function it's supposed to serve, and how it's this wonderful, glorious thing for us all. And so I know that was kind of a long uh, rabbit trail of a, of an, of a example, but in my mind, I mean, that's, that's kind of similar feelings, you know, from that, that, uh, just that scarred, ugly edifice in the kitchen to what I feel when I hear about the grand jury these days in Alaska, although I'm feeling a little more hopeful. So why don't you give us that recap and we'll get rolling. Yeah. Thanks, Jason. Uh, no, that was an excellent analogy, um, about how, uh, you know, how we fix problems. Um, there, there, there is a solution here. And, uh, you know, just as you kept putting off the, you know, fixing of your, of your cabinet door and it's kind of making you angry or angrier. I mean, you know, you, you, you solve that by taking the time to, to take care of it. 
And uh, that's much the same of, of what we have today in Alaska. Um, we, we, we do have this beautiful kitchen. And, um, uh, you know, there's, there's a part of it that uh, needs repair. And uh, so if we take the time to, to repair it, uh, you know, we're, we're going to get back to, to thinking, you know, what a beautiful kitchen that we have. And, and uh, you know, I know that most people in Alaska, you know, love the beauty, you know, lo- love the outdoors. Uh, I mean, that's why a lot of us are there uh, is because of the beauty that surrounds us. And so when when government drags us down, uh, when when actions of government uh, disturb us, uh, there's a solution there. It's, it's not to get angry. It's uh, it's to take action, and the action is is through the grand jury where people come together, and uh, that's actually uh, one of the things we're going to talk about today, uh, is is how uh, grand juries are very useful uh, for for bringing people together. So, to go to your recap uh, that you requested, uh, you know, so far in the first five chapters, it's we've we've taken everything in chronological order. Uh, starting with the grand jury a thousand years ago in England, and uh, we've traced its development under common law, uh, where it started out as use only in criminal uh, proceedings, and then it was brought over here in the early 1600s uh, to to colonial America, and it was expanded to civil use and investigations of of government and and you know the public welfare things that would improve the public welfare. And uh, then we saw how uh, in the industrial age, um, as uh, America grew and all the immigrants came from, you know, all over the world and, um, you know, city governments grew and corporations grew. We, we've learned how the, the importance of the grand jury became even more so. Uh, it was necessary uh, in, a, in a growing uh, society to to uh, that the grand jury sort out problems that people were experiencing, and um, I think it was in our last chapter, we chapter five, we talked about how um, you know there's there's people who are out to get the grand jury uh, to put it under under their thumb, and that's uh, primarily uh, politicians and and uh, as uh, Thomas Dewey said, uh, fuzzy-minded crackpots. Uh, and, and it's, you know, uh, there's been a lot of effort. The grand jury has made a lot of enemies uh, over the centuries of, of powerful people who, uh, you know, want to be able to, uh, you know, take the public for, for everything that they can. And the grand jury's been the stop to that. So uh, we saw, you know, how, how there's been a lot of uh, efforts to undermine the grand jury. Uh, and now this, uh, you know, this leads us to uh, into chapter six, and I'll just give a quick overview here of what you're going to be hearing in the next uh, half hour in my book. Um, but chapter six is the only chapter in my book that is out of chronological order. Uh, it, it reviews two scholarly studies on grand juries uh, that were done in the last 30 years by well-regarded professors with impeccable credentials. Both studies focus on another very positive aspect of the grand jury, and that's getting people back into engaging with government, uh, for people to feel like they have input into how things are run. Uh, Both of these studies uh, 
you know, that were both done around 1990, uh, they, they focused on that, on that benefit of grand juries. Um, the second study will also talk about the danger in court rules that suppress grand jury reports. Uh, the author in that study outlines a case in Colorado where a federal grand jury investigated nuclear waste infiltrating the water supply near Denver. Uh, obviously, that would be a huge, huge concern to people in that area. Uh, the judge in that case uh, used a federal court rule uh, very similar to uh, Alaska Criminal Rule 6.1 that we've been talking about to to suppress the truth from the uh, from the public. Uh, and then the last thing I'll just say in regards to uh, upcoming chapter six is that I'm going to be, uh, there's some long quotes. Uh, and so just uh, bear with me. I'll, I'll continue the use of quote and, you know, and then unquote, uh, you know, when we get to the end of that. So uh, without further introduction, uh, chapter six is titled Recent Perspectives, Grand Jury Service, increases public interest in civic affairs. Up to this point, we have followed the development of the common law powers of the grand jury through the first half of the 20th century. Before turning our attention specifically to the Alaska grand jury, it is worth taking a quick look at two more recent studies that align with the works of Lord Summers and Professor Younger. These studies highlight the growing disconnect between the American people and their governments. They call for an increased use of the grand jury in our country to help restore citizens' faith, participation, and sense of pride in government. In 1992, Professor Ronald F. Wright published an article entitled, quote, Why Not Administrative Grand Juries, unquote. Mr. Wright has an impressive resume currently serving as Executive Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at Wake Forest University Law School since 2014. He began his teaching career at Wake Forest in 1988 and has served as a visiting professor of law at Stetson University, University of Alabama, University of Arizona, Washington and Lee University, and North Carolina State University. Mr. Wright received his law degree from Yale University, where he was the editor of the Yale Law Journal. He has published eight books on legal topics and written numerous articles, reviews, and essays. Mr. Wright began his article with the following thought-provoking and clairvoyant paragraph, quote, The people care nothing for their bureaucrats. The typical citizen of the United States a nation founded on the notion that the people must govern themselves knows next to nothing about the daily administration of government. Although the government affects their lives profoundly, citizens interact with government agencies without any conviction that they could influence an outcome. And as participation and familiarity with public affairs dwindle, alienation and indifference grow. This detachment from the administrative work of government appears to be part of the larger pattern of declining voter turnout and apathy. There is reason to fear that Americans are losing any sense of community, unquote. 
Mr. Wright's article proposes using citizen panels modeled after the grand jury to monitor or perform some of the administrative tasks handled by government agencies. To support this proposal, Mr. Wright outlined the common law investigatory and reporting powers of the grand jury. He emphasized the historical duties of the grand jury to monitor government officials, to report their findings to the public, and if necessary, to recommend the removal of public officials. Mr. Wright cited to Judge Wilson's opinion that the grand jury serves as a channel of communication between the people and the government and identified the ability of the grand jury to help shape public policy. Mr. Wright's explanation of these functions is excellent, portions of which are provided below. Quote, local grand juries also monitored governmental activity other than criminal enforcement. For example, many grand juries early in the nation's history issued reports criticizing the condition of local roads, public buildings, or prisons. Grand juries criticized local officials for not providing adequate accounting of public funds or for spending public funds unwisely. They upbraided officials for not attending official meetings or for failing to supervise subordinates in local government. On occasion, they would even criticize the court, supervising their work for failing to carry out the court's various administrative duties. To facilitate these monitoring functions, grand juries generally had free access to the records of local government. A grand jury could choose for itself any activity of local government to be the subject of an inquiry and report, which would be addressed to the court and the public at large. Perhaps the most far-reaching monitoring power of the grand jury was its power, which still exists in a few states, to initiate the removal from office of elected officials. The grand jury, after an investigation of an official's misconduct, could initiate adversarial proceedings that might ultimately result in the removal of the official. Grand jury reports from time to time called for the removal of appointed officials as well. James Wilson, among the most influential of the drafters of the federal constitution, fully recognized the importance of the grand jury as a great channel of communication between those who make and administer the laws and those for whom the laws are made and administered. The importance of this body came not only from its power to indict or refuse indictment, but also from its powers to administer and shape public policy. All the operations of government and of its ministers and officers are within the compass of their review and research. They may suggest public improvements and the modes of re removing public inconveniences, they may expose to public inspection or to public punishment, public bad men and public bad measures. Judges who instructed grand juries about the significance of their duties during this time also emphasized the importance of popular participation in the administration of the laws. They stated time and again that grand juries could simultaneously make law enforcement more effective and prevent arbitrary exercises of administrative power. The grand jurors gener generally received these instructions enthusiastically and arranged to have the remarks published in the newspaper for distribution to the public. Alexis de Tocqueville, 
writing about the American Republic in 1840, declared that the jury system, which he defined broadly enough to include grand juries, was primarily a political institution that put control of public affairs into the hands of the people. The jury system, as understood in America, seems to me as direct and extreme a consequence of the dogma of the sovereignty of the people as universal suffrage, unquote. Professor Wright's article points out the grand jury's valuable role in helping to educate citizens of their important civic responsibilities and to encourage their increased participation in government affairs. Quote, the perceived benefits of a grand jury system ran in, more in one direction. Although grand juries were believed to improve the administration of public law and policy, supporters of grand juries also su suggested that the institution improved the civic virtue of the grand jurors themselves. In particular, grand jury service educated the jurors about the nature of their political institutions and, fos and fostered a sympathetic attachment between the jurors and their government. One form of education for the grand juror came from the instructions of the judge who supervised the work of the grand jury. The supervising judge would instruct the grand jurors about their legal duties and remind them of the importance of their task and the need for regular attendance. The judge would sometimes identify for the grand jury a line of inquiry to pursue and not leave the agenda entirely in the hands of the prosecutors or the grand jurors themselves. Judges gave these charges in a self-conscious effort to educate grand jurors. The content of their charges stressed the importance of jurors who could transcend self-interest. They pointed to grand jury service as a contribution to a government that would promote liberty and thereby make it easier for others to exercise civic virtue. Their charges also underscored the need for grand jurors to educate their fellow citizens regarding the operation of government, inform and practically convince everyone within your respective spheres of action. Other enthusiasts of the grand jury during this period similarly emphasized the value of grand jury service in educating citizens. Anti-federalists such as the federal farmer thought jurors were just as important to the daily public life of a community as, elective, as elected representatives. Their situation as jurors and representatives enables them to acquire information and knowledge in the affairs and government of the society and to come forward in turn as the sentinels and guardians of each other. Tocqueville dwelt at some length on the value of the jury experience in preparing citizens for self-government. He suggested that jury service installs, subquote, some of the habits of the judicial mind into every citizen, and just those habits as our very best way of preparing people to be free, subquote ended. It teaches equity in practice, encourages jurors to take responsibility for their actions, and makes the jurors feel that they take a share in society and its government. Education, education was not the only perceived benefit of jury service. The grand jurors experience administ administering the laws of the land fortified the attachment between the citizen and the commonwealth. 
Even when the grand jury corrected the errors of public officials, the participants developed a respect for the law that enabled them to hold officials accountable. Francis Lieber noted the tendency of jury service to strengthen an attachment between the citizen and the commonwealth. Subquote. It binds the citizen with increased public spirit to the government of his commonwealth and gives him a constant and renewed share in one of the highest public affairs, the application of the abstract law to reality of life, the administration of justice, subquote ended, quote ended. Alaska desperately needs a rekindling of the political attachment that Mr. Wright, Alexis de Tocqueville, and Francis Lieber believe is so important to a healthy democracy. Statistics currently available through our Division of Elections reveal voter turnout is steadily dropping and in 2018 set a record low of under 50%. A revival of the investigatory and reporting powers of the Alaska Grand Jury should help reverse this alarming trend. Professor Wright's recognition of the grand jury's ability to educate and encourage public participation in government matters was echoed by Professor Renee B. Letow, now Lerner, in her 1994 article titled, Reviving Federal Grand Jury Presentments. In discussing the benefit of increasing grand jurors' participation in government affairs, Professor Lerner used the same quote of Francis Lieber that Professor Wright had cited, quote, jury service binds the citizen with increased public spirit, unquote. On the additional benefit of increasing a citizen's civic education, she used another quote from Alexis de Tocqueville, quote, the jury should be regarded as a free school, which is always open and with and in which each juror learns his rights, comes into daily contact with the best educated and most enlightened members of the upper classes, and is given practical lessons in the law, unquote. Professor Lerner is another legal scholar slash historian with impressive credentials. She graduated summa cum laude in history from Princeton University and was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University, where she studied English legal history. At Yale Law School, she was articles editor of the Yale Law Journal and later clerked for Justice Anthony Kennedy of the U.S. Supreme Court. Professor Lerner is a co-author of the book, quote, History of the Common Law, the Development of Anglo-American Legal Institutions, published 2009. She is currently the Donald Philip Rothschild Research Professor of Law at George Washington University Law School. Her article, Reviving Federal Grand Jury Presentments, focused on the grand jury's historical common law powers in federal court settings. Ms. Lerner pointed out the emphasis given by early federal judge James Wilson to the independence of the grand jury, quote, grand jurors are not appointed for the prosecutor or for the court. They are appointed for the government and for the people, unquote. Later in her article, she cited again to Judge Wilson and then to John Jay, the first chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, as examples of federal judges emphasizing the importance of the grand jury's power to investigate and to criticize the conduct 
of public officials. However, Ms. Lerner's study is most valuable to Alaskans for helping to demonstrate how the enemies of grand jurors, juries can neutralize their investigatory powers by adopting subtle court rules that give judges more control over those reporting powers. The impact can be disastrous, leaving citizens more frustrated and exasperated than ever. Professor Lerner used a federal case in Colorado known as Rocky Flats to illustrate how a federal judge used federal court rules to try to intimidate federal grand jurors and to prevent them from informing the public about the extent of hazardous nuclear waste infiltrating their water supply. To better understand how a debacle like Rocky Flats could ever unfold, recall our previous discussion in Chapter 2. The Fifth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution guaranteed the right of a grand jury in federal criminal matters, but did not extend those protections to the common law investigatory powers of the federal grand jury. To recap, this omission by our nation's founders was deliberate because of, one, the tension between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, two, local grand jurors' unfamiliarity with federal laws, and perhaps most importantly, three, local grand juries were considered more important because they handled most day-to-day matters at a time when the federal government powers were limited. After the Fifth Amendment was adopted, we saw in Chapter 2 how influential federal judges like James Wilson and John Jay continued to praise and promote the reporting powers of the federal grand juries. However, over time, Mr. Dewey's enemies, the, quote, fuzzy-minded crackpots, unquote, gained momentum in their reform efforts. Without the constitutional protection of the grand jury's reporting power, the federal court system eventually adopted restrictive court rules that subtly harnessed investigative reports. The federal grand jury completely lost its independence if the judge disagreed with their conclusion. Centuries of common law independence was wiped out. Ms. Lerner observed, quote, for all practical purposes, the federal rules of criminal procedure have abolished the grand jury's presentment power. Such judicial discretion gets the power. Confusion arises because the rules smother the presentment power without doing so explicitly. The rules conflict with traditional federal practice, and because the Supreme Court has offered no guidance, lower courts have floundered in trying to discern or make the law, unquote. The Rocky Flats case highlighted by Professor Lerner provides an alarming example of what can happen when the reporting power of the grand jury can be restrained by judicial discretion through court rules. In 1989, a federal grand jury in Colorado began investigating the operations of a federal facility developed in 1952 to produce uranium and plutonium components for use in nuclear weapons. The facility was massive, covering 6,500 acres and located on a plateau known as Rocky Flats, about 15 miles northwest of Denver. Rockwell International operated the facility. In the late 1980s, reports of environmental problems began to surface. The facility was shut down in 1989 after being raided by federal FBI and EPA agents 
who documented numerous violations of federal anti-pollution laws. An estimated 3,500 people turned out for a demonstration outside the facility. Today, the former nuclear's weapon facility is a Superfund site, inaccessible to the public, with billions of dollars spent trying to clean up the hazardous waste. The Colorado Grand Jury was charged to investigate whether any criminal activity had occurred in connection with these significant environmental problems. The Colorado Grand Jurors undertook a thorough investigation, questioning 110 witnesses and reviewing 2,000 exhibits. They found the federal government and its contractors had engaged, quote, in a continuing campaign of distraction, deception, and dishonesty, unquote, while discharging hazardous and radioactive matter into local water supplies. The grand jurors felt that based on the evidence they had gathered, eight individuals should be charged criminally, including employees of Rockwell and the Department of Energy. Federal prosecutors ignored these recommendations and reached a plea agreement with Rockwell in which the company admitted to 10 environmental crimes and paid $18 million in penalties, a sum equal to the amount of bonuses Rockwell had received from the government for operating the facility. The the Colorado grand jurors were so upset with this decision that with the help of a prosecutor's manual, the grand jury drafted up its own indictment and presented it to the judge along with a report criticizing the prosecutor's handling of the case. The federal judge reacted by stealing all the grand jury's documents, including their report. Matters quickly escalated between the people and the federal government. The grand jury retaliated by leaking information to the press. The judge retaliated by asking the Justice Department to investigate the jurors for violations of their secrecy oath. The jurors appealed to the president and requested a special prosecutor to investigate the Justice Department's handling of the case. National publicity ensued, and the Justice Department eventually dropped its investigation of the grand jurors. Both the federal judge and prosecutor left a bad impression on the grand jury, evidencing an alarming disconnect reminiscent of colonial grand juries dealing with the local representatives of a distant central government. According to the jurors, the government prosecutor had a condescending attitude. One juror claimed he, quote, treated us like third graders, unquote. Another juror claimed he, quote, didn't give us credit for having any sense, unquote. When the jurors began to clash with the prosecutor and presented the judge with written questions regarding the extent of their powers, his ensuing advice amounted to little more than, quote, mumbo-jumbo, unquote, to them. At the beginning, the federal judge had told them not to, quote, yield your powers, no forego your independence of spirit, unquote. Yet after the jury exercised that independence, the judge referred them to the Justice Department for criminal investigation. Professor Lerner succinctly summed up the state of affairs that left Colorado citizens so disillusioned with their government, quote, Jurors have repeatedly expressed frustration with the judicial system that requests their services for two years, yet denies them the power to make public their accusations. Seven jurors appeared on NBC's Dateline, and Shirley Kyle's comment was representative. 
quote. It makes me mad because if what we say or did doesn't mean anything, why did they choose to have a special grand jury? Sub unquote. Rocky Flats demonstrates how current secrecy rules thwart the people's ability to influence their own government and heighten the already towering level of exasperation with that government, unquote. Miss Lerner wrote these underscored words almost 30 years ago. On a national scale, we can see today where that level of ex- exasperation with our government has risen to. It's hard to fathom where the level must be today for those citizens living near Rocky Flats, fearful of cancer-causing substances in the water supply. Decades later, residents are still trying to get the sealed grand jury report re- records for help in resolving reports of remaining environmental hazards, including lost plutonium. In 2019, federal prosecutors informed those residents via email that the 65 boxes of sealed documents in their custody had been, quote, lost, unquote. And that's the end of Chapter 6. Nothing to see here. <laughs> Nothing to see. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing what the, what the government will go to uh, sometimes uh, to prevent the people from, from knowing the truth. You know, and, uh, this this reminds me of a, a little bit of David Haig's story about, you know, his situation where he was basically asked by the Department of Fish and Game to go and shoot wolves from the air to, uh, you know, lower the predation on large game in an area that was heavily impacted by, by wolves. And they gave him maps, which they then decided to uh, put aside and not allow those to be used in his defense. And they, they put other maps that were not, um, not the original maps that he was given, you know, as their evidence of him having committed some kind of uh, a crime and thought that he was not smart enough. Maybe, maybe like that gentleman who thought he was being talked to is like he was a third grader, uh, you know, not smart enough to figure it out and be able to show in court that, that there was nefarious, uh, you know, activity going on within the government. But uh, here we are, 18 years later or so, from when the state did a pretty serious wrong to David and his family. And it seems the attitude is pervasive in the administration from the governor's office on down and in the courts, you know, nothing to see here. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, you know, the government just, in, in my view, they just keep digging themselves a bigger hole and, and they keep expanding, you know, they, they, they suck other people, they suck other government officials into it. Uh, you know, we can, we can see, we see this happening in, in the Thomas Jack case, uh, you know, down in, down in Juneau. Uh, you know, the, the, the uh, uh, Department of Law uh, made, made egregious errors. Uh, and and the the judge in the case uh, made egregious errors, and and uh, the appellate courts uh, they upheld all that, and uh, and now it's it's you know there there's there's a lot of people. I mean, I'll you know one of those is Treg Taylor. I mean, you know he's gotten sucked into this thing. He wasn't involved in in. Uh, he's a new uh, appointee, relatively he, new, new appointee. Yeah, relatively new appointee. Yeah, and, and it's sucking Governor Dunleavy into this. 
I mean, you know, he was probably a school teacher when all this happened to, uh, uh, to Thomas Jack, but, but now today he's the governor and, and his policies and his actions are, are, are sucking him into this. And it's just, or his inactions. Or yeah, his, his well, there's there's been some things going on uh, where you know there there's been some things that have uh, taken place in the last two or three years uh, to to increase the pressure on Mr. Jack. Things that are wrong, and uh, it is his administration that is involved in this. And so, you know, I just think the point is that you know I don't want to get you know we we've already talked about Mr. Jack's circumstances and Mr. Haig's circumstances. And, and you know, yeah, Mr. Haig and, and the people of Kenai have every single right to this investigation. Uh, there's concerns there. And, and the people that are picketing and going to talking at city councils uh, for support, I mean, it, it, this is something that needs to be investigated to, to put, it doesn't mean that, you know, if if the if the state government is in the right, then the the grand jury investigation will show that, and and so the fact that they're covering up and you know basically they're obstructing justice, and and we see this now at the attorney general level by uh, putting in lawyers to advise a grand jury that have con- you know conflicts of interest, serious conflicts of interest. So um, they're just digging themselves a bigger hole to protect the system. But hopefully at some point, some of these people are going to wake up and go, you know what? I'm going to still salvage my career while I can and, and not let these other people take me down. And, and so hopefully we're, we're at that point. One of, the, one of the important questions that people should be asking, and, and uh, I sat here uh, on Saturday with Mr. Haig as he pointed this, this fact out, um, that people should be asking the Dunleavy administration, the governor directly, and, and the attorney general's office, um, this one question. Is the special investigator who has been assigned to assist the Kenai grand jury, is he without conflict of interest? I.e., has he ever served in a role working for the state directly uh, in relation to the allegations being presented to the grand jury for investigation? Because according to Mr. Haig, that is the case, that the special investigator now who is advising the grand jury was inserted into the process. Now, he's in private practice now, and when directly asked the question by Mr. Haig about whether or not uh, there was a conflict there, uh, reportedly his response was that he has this essentially higher level of thinking where he can bifurcate one side of his brain from the other, and anything he did under state services doesn't come into the equation at all when he's in private practice. And, you know, uh, whether or not he has that ability, uh, I think is moot because the point here is we want to get rid of any, I guess, perception of impropriety or the potential for uh, undue influence to be inserted into that independent uh, grand jury's investigation. And, um, you know, it's, it's just an example of what you've described in this and previous chapters about how powerful agents within the government will seek to undermine the integrity 
of a group of randomly selected people, citizens within the community, in order to keep their uh, narrative going in the direction they want to rather than actually finding what the fact of the matter is and then moving on. Yes, yes. I, I, you know, and we've been talking about this uh, over the last, you know, few episodes and, uh, you know, bringing things back into chapter six, you know, it just, um, you know, my, my two takeaways there are, you know, this, this growing disconnect, you know, the first one is the growing disconnect between the public and government. Uh, you know, here, here you have two uh, esteemed professors of, of law and history, uh, widely respected throughout the country. And, and they're the ones talking to this, you know, you know, again, this, this isn't David Ignell saying this stuff, you know, these, these are, uh, People, you know, well-respected at the top of their field, and they're writing this, and they're talking about the growing disconnect between government and, and the people, and, and I'm sure the people at Kenai uh, acutely feel this disconnect, where you've got to stand out in the cold with picket signs uh, to just to get judges to allow grand juries to do what's constitutionally guaranteed to them. I mean, you, you want a, a, a nutshell case about, uh, or a case in point about uh, the disconnect? It's, it's the, the, the images that I've seen of people holding up picket signs, uh, trying to, you know, trying to overcome this suppression by the, by the state of Alaska, by, you know, this, this, this concert between, uh, the Department of Law and the Alaska court system. Well, and, and, uh, and I can speak directly to that because I, I actually went down and uh, I stood with those folks one time. And uh, generally I'm busy on Wednesday mornings and they met every Wednesday all summer long uh, protesting. Wednesday is when the, uh, the grand juries are impaneled. And, um, and so they wanted to make a, an impression. They didn't stand there all day long in front of the court impeding traffic. They stood there for a very narrow window of time to be present when the grand jurors were entering the building so that the grand jury would know that the public was unhappy and that they wanted to have their grievances uh, reviewed and addressed by the grand jury. And, um, you know, as the protest uh, wore on through the, the summer, the court did some interesting things. They created some uh, policies that uh, then they used the, the court clerk and other staff within the system to tell the people that they could no longer uh, stand on the grounds of the courthouse or, or park in the parking lot at the courthouse for their, their um, protest. That they could not uh, stand on public land and peacefully demonstrate. And, uh, and that's what they did. They, they peacefully demonstrated. They were quiet. They weren't screaming and yelling and throwing things or intimidating people coming in and out of the building. Uh, they were quietly, respectfully standing there with signs, you know. And, uh, and the court system was to uh, try and intimidate them with... Uh, with uh, troopers and security and policy people from the, the building and, and uh, by telling them they didn't have a right to be there. And, and if we think about this, I mean, really it's not just a failure of the courts to observe the right of the people to, to convene a grand jury and ask the questions they want to ask. 
It's an infringement on our rights to assemble. It's an infringement on our rights to free speech. It's an infringement on our rights to petition the government for redress of our grievances. I mean, this is this is not just a simple, you know, oh, the the you know, there's a there's a problem with an interior internal working in the court system that you know can be resolved through procedure and polite conversation the court is flexing its muscle and the bureaucrats uh, within the administration are flexing uh, a muscle that we the people have not given them they're telling us that we don't have the rights that are guaranteed in the very first uh, few statements in our constitution at the state level and the federal level yeah, no, it's, it's, you know, I, I just come back to the, you know, the thought that these people are digging themselves a, a bigger hole. And, and, you know, there's probably people at that Kenai courthouse that are, you know, uh, good government employees that are just caught up. Uh, they're, they're, they're caught up in this and, and they don't want to put their foot down or raise their hand and say, Hey, you know, are we doing the right thing here by preventing these people and, uh, from, from, you know, holding these picket signs on, on the courthouse property? Well, last, uh, last and- uh, episode, you talked about boss Tweed and the Tammany Hall uh, example in New York. And I can't remember how many indictments you said were handed down at the end of that investigation, but it was just around 45 or 50, I believe, if I remember correctly. And yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, there was. I know one investigation where there was like thirty indictments, and then I think another investigation we talked about where there was like maybe close to eighty indictments. So, there we go. So you know, I mean, that's that's really what the message I I hope will uh, trickle on up to the governor's office and to the attorney general's office is while you may not have been around when this issue began, uh, your uh, your barriers, anything you construct to stop the grand jury from performing its duties under its legal authority and obligation makes you a, um, oh, what's the word, uh, uh, makes you part of the original crime. It actually, you, you are a co-conspirator at that point. And you, you are uh, aiding and abetting in covering up and hiding previously, uh, you know, um, illegal actions. And in doing so, you become a target within this indictment process. So, so it's not just business as usual and I can wash my hands because I wasn't there when it started. If they actively impede this, you know, I would expect the grand jury to be, you know, if, if, they, if they find that that uh, the people who have brought their grievances forward have actual factual, you know, instances of corruption that they've, they've identified, then anybody associated with that, you know, should be looking to the hills, you know, or uh, trying to distance themselves from it as quickly as possible. Well, I, you know, one, one suggestion might be for, um, you know, to, for, for the people in Kenai to, to email uh, a copy of my book to, you know, the court, you know, if there's to the extent there's any law enforcement or any court officials that have been involved in these obstruction activities, 
uh, to to email them a copy of my book and say, look, you know, you, you know, we, we we don't want you to go to jail, <laughs> you know, we don't want you to be indicted down the road. Re- read up on this, and and uh, you know, because the the, the lack of you know, this, my book was all about to educate uh, people and uh, to educate not only, you know, the, the non-government citizens, but also, you know, people working in government. And uh, uh, there's, there's, there's probably some people in, inside the courthouse, inside law enforcement who, you know, have this sense that, hey, you know, maybe what's going on here isn't right. And, and this will, this you know, reading my book might might help them, might help them stay out of trouble, and and they might turn out to be, uh, you know, good um, uh, good sources uh, for for the future uh, grand jury investigation. Uh, I think one of the words maybe you were looking for there a little bit ago was accessory. That's you know, accessory the word. Accessory to crime. That's the yeah. word. Accessory. I was, I yeah. was, I was grasping and I couldn't quite reach it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I, there, you know, I, I, I certainly don't want to see, you know, people go to jail. Uh, you know, I think there's some that are going to have to, uh, for the things that they have done for the deception that they've, they've, uh, uh, worked on the people. And, and I mean, there's in Mr. Jack's case, uh, you know, that's 12 years in jail and counting, uh, you know, and, and, there, there needs to be some kind of uh, uh, punishment for for the people that put him in there wrongfully. Um, but for the people, you know, on the there's just I, I just see it. It's kind of like this big whirlpool that's getting bigger and it's sucking innocent people in uh, that don't need to be in there. And and so hopefully they'll um, you know have a chance to to read my book and and understand that what they're doing and impeding the grand jury is breaking the law. And they have to decide, do we want to, do we want to cast, you know, which, which lot do we want to, you know, cast, uh, cast with here and, and hopefully they'll make the right decision. Well, you know, I've heard it, I've heard it from a couple of different people now that have found themselves uh, sideways from the, the, the department of law and, and uh, the court system um, and who have been right and righteous and uh, wrongly accused or uh, prosecuted that uh, when it comes to light, when they have compiled all the evidence uh, that that uh, they should not be, you know, held uh, to account for something they didn't do, um, it is a common practice of the state. It, at least that's what it seems to me, because I keep hearing this is happening, you know, more and more, that the state will, when they've re- realized that they've done something wrong, They'll flip it around and say, oh, you know, we'll give you your life back. We'll mm-hmm. just make this yeah. all go away. But you have to sign a non-disclosure agreement and, uh, and promise not to sue us and not to come after us. We can make this all go away. And if they, if they don't agree to that, then the state just keeps holding their feet to the fire. It, it's like yeah. blackmail, you know. And, uh, and that, that definitely... Uh, it needs to be addressed. And, you know, I think the, the prosecutors or the people who offer those deals, they have no soul because they know it's wrong and, and they know that it's blackmail and they know that they have all the power on their side to continue to unjustly, you know, treat people and abuse justice. And, and they are a cancer in our system. And part of the reason why 
voters aren't turning out and people have no faith in in the government and our courts? Well, I just, you know, what you were just saying, Jason, reminds me of, you know, the first thought that came to my mind is the Fairbanks Four. You know, four, four guys up there who... Uh, uh, you know, in jail for a number of years, and and it finally came out that they were wrongfully convicted. But you know, before the state would let them go, uh, my understanding is they had to sign a document saying that they wouldn't sue the state of a you know the state for for damages for being, you know. So the state, you know, some prosecutors were holding that over their head. They're innocent, and they're holding that over their head to to, to get out. And, uh, you know, that's, that's just awful. And, uh, it's unconscionable, uh, so we, unconscionable. It, it, it is. And, uh, you know, so we need to, you know, we just need to get back. Uh, you know, I, the, the other thought that comes to my mind is I ask myself, how, how did we get here? You know, uh, how do we get to this, this point where government is just so there's so many bad apples in government and, and, things aren't happening. And, and, you know, I, I think it comes back to elections. You know, we, we, the way our constitution is set up, we, we don't elect our prosecutors. Uh, so there's no local accountability and we don't elect our judges. We have no choice over who we want as judges. It's all through this judicial council. So we have, uh, you know, in large part, two branches of our government, especially on the criminal side where the officials aren't elected. So what, what I see in like the Thomas Jack case and in another case in Southeast is I see the, you know, the judge and the prosecutor uh, kind of working together. And, um, you know, they're, they're on the same page and there's not this, you know, separation of powers as there should be. So I think that's something, you know, that's why I'm currently pushing for a constitutional amendment uh, in the uh, in the upcoming legislative session so that we change the way that uh, we you know that we that we get our judges in Alaska uh, and then I, I think a, a second constitutional amendment would be to have uh, uh, maybe elections of the attorney general and and or local prosecutors to have more accountability to the people because right now there's no accountability it's just this big bureaucratic machine uh, basically run out of anchorage and uh, it's got no accountability uh, to, to, to voters. And I think we need to, we need to change that. So it, one last uh, observation is that there are civil processes to addressing this, process, this problem. There are ways to exert pressure and expose those who may be associated with this cover-up in a number of cases. And uh, I look to, you know, uh, the rise of the vigilante um, uh, hero character that we see in the movies so often. And uh, can't help but wonder if this, this, uh, this is a, a deep seated sort of feeling that people are having is that, they need a Robin Hood type character who's going to go back and, you know, slap the sheriff around and, and, and take everything back from Prince John, just hoping for, you know, King Richard to come back. And um, that uh, in a culture whose 
pop culture and in and uh, theater and the arts and and in writing starts to celebrate these characters more and more and more. If that's not some kind of a deeper psychic sort of expression of the angst that we all feel in a system that seems to be spiraling out of control in the wrong direction. And we can look to the Japanese culture and um, see a similar thing, you know, a culture that experiences tsunamis and earthquakes and uh, were the recipients of the... uh, the atom bomb, you know, uh, on the uh, the end of the, the Second World War, you look in their pop culture and a lot of what they write about, a lot of what is captured on screen and, and um, in storytelling is uh, our survivor tales about cataclysmic, apocalyptic things that are happening to their culture. And when a culture feels like it's out of that something's out of their control. They, they look for ways to express um, at least an ideal way that they can regain control or at least cope with the stresses caused by those, by those, uh, those things that are outside of their control. And so I just, I, I think to the, the uh, character of green arrow, um, my kids enjoy watching that. And uh, I, I watched about three seasons of it and then I was done, but um that character has a famous saying. Whenever he gets a bad guy, he says, you have failed this city. And he's always going after somebody who's in a public position, a position of trust, a position that's supposed to represent the people. And it's always some crooked businessman or city councilman or, you know, it's kind of like the same folks that you see in the Batman series. And um, I can't help but wonder if that's, what our culture is expressing through the arts right now and that uh just another sign of the times and that we need to wake up and we need to pull together or we can expect more of the same yeah jason that's kind of interesting your perspective on that you know we we all need our heroes and uh you know in england it was it was robin hood uh you know and, and england being the home of the grand jury but in in england uh, you know, it was just, it was criminal. It wasn't civil. And, and over uh, the grand jury and over here in America, you know, it was expanded to civil. So we, we have our hero. Uh, our hero is the grand jury. Right. And it's not a fictional character. And it's a, it, and unlike England, it's a character that works within the law. Uh, you know, that's the difference between the grand jury and, and Robin Hood. They're not shooting people uh, in the kneecaps with arrows. Yeah, yeah, and and they're not they're not even considered outlaws. It's it's completely legal under the law. And you know, it's interesting what you said about Japan because you know over there, I mean, you look at the devastation of of Japan and and you know World War Two and you know just the devastation of the two nuclear bombs. But you know, the people over there put all their faith in in one person. You know, and and I, I think. That's a, uh, you know, I'm, I'm no great student of, of uh, you know, Japan culture or anything, but it just seems to me that when you put all that faith in, in one person, uh, you don't have the, the separation of powers that our democracy has. And so this is why it's so important, I think, to, to have public officials who are elected. And then, you know, right up in there is, is, is the grand jury. It's the fourth leg of government, and, and we've heard time and time again you know, Supreme Court justices say U.S. Supreme Court justices say that it's right up there with the legislature. So, 
we we do have a hero and uh we just need and, it, and it's a legal hero and uh we just need to uh to start utilizing it and uh, i think we'll see things start getting better so you are the hero <laughs> i am the hero we all are the hero in yes. this story of the united states and alaska we each have a role to play we each have uh, a way that we can put our hand to the oar and move the ship forward. Uh, we have a responsibility. It's not just a right, but a responsibility to both observe and uphold the law. And the jury system allows us to do that latter piece. Hopefully you are law-abiding every day. Let's make our community safer. Let's educate our community Share this uh, episode and the others as we continue on in our 14-part special series with David Ignell. Uh, we look forward to Chapter 7 next time around. If you're wondering how you can get involved, you can contact the Ammo Can Coffee Social Club for more information. You can uh, visit our website at www.ammocancoffee.ninja to see what it be, uh, what. Uh, being a member looks like and uh, to see how you can connect with other like-minded folks looking for justice and peace and promotion of the American way. Thank you, David, and uh, we'll catch you in the next episode. Thank you, Jason. God bless.